turn your love of babies and bellies into cash. If you love babies and bellies and want to provide care and support to families, then Bebo Mia's webinar is the right place for you. Get answers to those burning questions like how to be the voice you wish you had at your birth and how babies and families can be supported by doulas. Learn all about the different kinds of doulas. You can work in fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, or just enjoy working with those squishy babies. Supporting families by becoming a birth worker, aka doula, is perhaps an option that hasn't even crossed your mind. And that's why we want you to join this webinar. You can have great earning potential while doing something you love. Bebo Mia is the one-stop shop for education, community, and mentorship. Reserve your spot today at bebomia.com slash free webinar. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Hello, hello. You guys, this is our last episode of the year. 2022 has come and gone, and I cannot believe it. So many things have changed. This year, as you know, Julie has left the company and I've been solo for a little bit. And that was a big, big change for us. But I am doing one of our first, I should say one of my first special episodes with a birth professional with Dr. Christine Noah Sterling. And I cannot wait, cannot (laughs) wait for this episode to be aired because it's going to be amazing. Dr. Sterling is a board-certified OBGYN and a founder of Sterling Parents, which is a membership that provides the heartfelt support, expert advice, and timeless wisdom people deserve as they grow their families. After becoming a mother herself, she discovered firsthand how little support Western medicine offers to women moving through the life-altering transition into motherhood, which... Amen to that. I, it makes me sad. It breaks my heart how little support there is. So now as a mom, she's on a mission and dedicated to ensure women to get the maternal care and support they deserve. Dr. Sterling has developed a signature body, mind, and heart model of care, combining the cutting edge science and ancient wisdom with her years of patient care, thousands of births, and long-standing meditation practice. So Dr. Sterling, yes, we are so happy that you're here. <laughs> I am so happy. I still say we, we as in the VBAC link. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but I used to have a partner named Julie and she, we've been together for years and years and she's just recently left. And so I just can't get out of the I and the we. We're just, yeah. I'm always going to be a we. <laughs> And you know what? In medicine, we almost we always talk in the the we when you're mm-hmm. a part of a team. So yeah. I will oftentimes I always use the we. The we. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to share that I did not cover? That all the amazing things that you do. 
I think we'll get into all, we'll get it all into it. But yeah, that's, that's the, the long and short of it. <laughs> the long and short of it. There's so much because you are so amazing. Okay. Well then we'll just dive Let's right do in it. then. So as like when, as we were getting questions, a lot of yeah. people ask very similar questions. And so one of the number one questions that people are asking is how do you truly advocate for yourself? What is the best way to advocate for yourself? It, as a VBAC mom, you can feel very much against the world when you're totally. entering a birth space. And sometimes when you are entering a birth space where you don't really know, some, you know, there's an on-call provider, like you said, when we work in a team and you don't know that person and you haven't really established that the relationship of them knowing what you want, it can be hard and then different nurses and all the things. So what would you say is one of the best ways to advocate for yourself as a patient? Yeah. So I think that sometimes we, the, the word advocate can sometimes have this, it can put a lot of pressure onto the individual that like, I need to advocate. Right. And so it feels like strong. Yes. And exactly. And it feels like this really heavy weight there. And there's a lot of, Mm -hmm. um, it's just, there's a mental weight to this. I have to advocate to get what I need. And I completely understand where that comes from, you know, especially Mm -hmm. when you're wanting a VBAC and it can feel like there's policies that are going against you and that, that that you're, you know, people aren't working with you. And so I think that the the first thing is is to hopefully get into a therapeutic relationship with a pra- a, a, a midwife a, a a doctor or a practice of doctors in which there is a collaborative relationship mm-hmm. in which advocating isn't so heavy it's a conversation it is a discussion yes. that you are having with each other and for for me I think that oftentimes physicians and patients are communicating to each other on different levels Mm -hmm. and we aren't really understanding where the other party is coming from. And we don't understand what's the tape that's playing in their mind as a patient. You may be playing this tape of, you know, I'm the, the, they're, they're trying to get me to have a C-section and like the the Mm -hmm. odds are against me and I've got to fight my way through it. And Mm -hmm. as a, as a physician, you have a whole other tape playing. And so one of the things that I really encourage with my members is really, you know, I share the kind of behind the scenes, the like thought process that's going on for their OBGYN when they're Mm -hmm. having that conversation so that the, the patient can show up with a perspective and in a space that creates that really strong collaborative environment. And I can go through some of the things that I typically talk to my members about with that. But I think that I like to tell my members, like, this is not about you having to advocate so hard for yourself, but rather to invite your provider into a collaborative relationship with you. And there are ways that individuals can do that. I want to caveat that with, I I, I wish that it wasn't something that patients had to do so much. You know, I wish it was something that as physicians, we showed up into that space. And a lot of physicians do, but not everybody does. Right. And that is, I like to think of it. It's, it's not the problem of each healthcare provider being, oh, you're bad and you should be showing up and collaborating with patients better. It is a system problem very much. We have burnt out physicians who have hospitals that are, that are, um, you know, coming down on them, you know, so Mm -hmm. we have a system that does not foster a collaborative relationship between patients 
And there are things that individual patients can do to invite their provider to have a more collaborative relationship. I wish wish patients didn't have to do that, but I do think it can be beneficial. For sure. And I think sometimes too, as a patient coming in, we do know that our providers are burning out a lot of the time. Like they don't have a ton of time. And so you have a lot that you want to bring to the table, but at the same time, you kind of hold back and restrict that because you don't want to like drill your provider with a million questions. And sometimes the provider, although they really want to answer, they don't have the time to like have that collaborative conversation. And, And so it's not even that they don't want to, it's that they can't because oh, they're seeing me. 60 patients that day. We would much rather, <laughs> much rather when, when physicians leave and stop taking insurance and go and do a, a, a private practice that is, mm-hmm. that is just cash based, which some, that's how some physicians yeah. solve the burnout issue is like, yeah. you know what? I'm, I'm exiting the insurance realm. Cause it's, do, what do they do? They have longer appointments with their patients. They take mm-hmm. less point up. That's what we want. We yes. only, I only want to see, you know, you only want to see 10 patients a day and give yes. each patient 45 minutes, hundred mm-hmm. percent, but you can't if you take insurance. And so we are locked into this system that makes us, we are not able to have the type of therapeutic relationship with right. our patients that all of us at our core want. And some of us have awakened to the fact that like we the patients aren't the problem. The system is the problem. And some physicians, you know, will, will, oh, it's the patient is asking too many questions and I'm annoyed at the patient, but they're not saying like, you're not annoyed at the patient. That patient was, was, was paying, you know, whatever amount of money for that appointment. And so you had a whole hour with them. You would be so happy to show up and educate. Yes. Yes. Well, and then sometimes too, uh, on the patient side of things, we can see it as, oh, well, my doctor's not supportive my provider's not supportive because they don't even want to listen to me or, or they're very quick to answer. Yep. Right. And from a VBAG standpoint, a lot of the times when we're coming into these providers to ask them these questions, we really want a heartfelt answer. We don't just want to yes do. or no. Right. And so that's another one of the questions that a lot of people have asked, like, what are some of the signs or some of the red flags yeah. that I should be watching out for, for that? Maybe my provider, all probably wonderful, but may not be the best provider for me for me yeah. or for that patient, right? Um, how can someone decipher through that and try to understand that that doctor doesn't, that provider doesn't have a lot of time as well, yeah. but like, yeah. so there's this happy medium, but what are some, I guess, red flags or some yep. signs that you would say that might not be a good provider for you? Perfect. So there's, there's two main issues here. It's, it's one, how do we, you know, how do we have a, a conversation about VBAC when we have so little time. So I, I want to mm-hmm. address that. The first question though, is how do you, what are the red flags? How do you know if you have a, the right provider to support you having a VBAC? And this right. is actually really, really simple and very easy to do. What you're going to do is you're going to go to your provider and you're going to say, what do you think about VBAC? And yes. you're going to be quiet. You're not going to lead them that you want a VBAC. You're not going, nothing. And just let them talk. And if you have a provider who is like, you know, I just, I really, VBACs make me really nervous. I, you know, I'll do them, but Mm -hmm. they make me really nervous. And I've had, I've been burned and I've had some bad experiences. Okay. Or if you have someone who's like, I love VBAC. When I get a a pregnant person who has, you know, a quote unquote successful VBAC, it makes me so happy. It makes my day. So there's a, there's very different people, right? Yeah. And 
it's not that somebody who has who has that more negative view of VBAC can't provide you appropriate medical care, but it's that whole extra level of your experience. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. the if if you are going for a VBAC and you feel like you know your provider is like already got the scalpel in their hand, it, <laughs> it just puts like an extra stress and an extra pressure on you to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Whereas the person who's in the the relationship with someone who loves VBAC is like we're doing it together, we're collaborating. Like yes, so, yeah. when that also when that provider who loves VBAC and who's like gung ho with you says, you know what, we gotta call it like. Mm-hmm. let's do it. You come to that from a, a place of, you know what? I trust this person. I know she, yeah. I know she wanted this for me. And I trust that what she's telling me right now, like that I really do need is best. Is yeah. best. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think you just ask the question. You keep very quiet. You don't let them know how you feel about VBAC or that you want a VBAC. Mm-hmm. And you just let them tell you their perspective. Mm-hmm. Both providers, I think can, uh, can provide excellent medical care, but you want to be in an environment with someone who's, who's into it, who's excited about me. Yeah. Who's going to, who's just going to create that extra level of experience. Because like you said, like this provider over here may be more hesitant and, you know, is quote unquote going to let you try, but like may not have that extra and energy and and positivity in your experience, but you still may get your V back. Yes. You know, with that provider. Yes. And that doesn't mean that they're not totally unsupportive. And yeah. we talk about like tolerant or, you know, like stuff like that. But like, yeah, this other provider over here may be the perfect provider for your experience. Exactly. I love that. And, you know, I have, there are really great physicians who have ch- attempted VBACs themselves and had bad experiences. And, you know, the reality is, is that yeah. physicians are human beings and we bring our experience to the table and to, you know, ideally we would maybe do a little bit less than that, but that's just the reality of human beings. We're bringing our experience to the table. If we've been burned, it can be hard to Mm -hmm. to work past that. Well, and just like you were saying at the beginning, like that provider may be playing um, a different tape in their head and that was based off of their experience. Yes. Right. Okay. I love that. Anything else you want to touch on that? Oh, so in terms of the VBAC, like how do you have this conversation with your provider about VBAC? I want us to look at having the conversation about VBAC over an entire pregnancy. Please do not try to fit it. Like it is okay to start talking about VBAC at like, maybe not your first appointment because there's so much going on. You're like, you know, all of that, but it's okay to start talking about in the first trimester. I'm a big Mm -hmm. proponent of that. I'm a big proponent of I believe that a lot of pregnant people are carrying around a, like this mental weight of uncertainty and unanswered questions and concerns and worries. And for me, part of having the VBOC discussion early is let's let's start relieving some of that that yes. weight. So that's yes. you know that's I think really important is if it's on your mind and if your provider is saying you know, we'll talk about that closer. Just say, you know what? I get it. Like I'm so far away from my VBAC. I totally get it, but it's, it's on my mind. And I think that it will really help, you know, with my, my stress levels, with my, Mm -hmm. with my quality of life. If I can start having some of these questions answered now, so I don't have to carry them around for the, you know, for the, my whole pregnancy. Right. Yeah. And something that um, one of our followers asked was like, the, I, I'm sure you've heard of it, bait and switch, right? Mm-hmm. So like 
where they seem like supportive. And then in that last minute, when you really start talking about it, um, they kind of like shift their gears. And sometimes I feel like if we can do what you said, like start talking about it in our first trimester, then we may recognize earlier on whether or not that provider and you are a good match or not, because the bait and switch a lot of times feels like it comes at the end where they're like, yeah, yeah, like we're supportive, but they're never really having that full conversation. And there are so many questions, but like you said, there's a whole pregnancy, right? And so we can be asking these questions at each visit, taking the little time that the provider does have um, and having that to avoid that last and trimester last few weeks of feeling like your provider just switched on you. Yeah. So I don't know if there's anything you want to talk about bait and switch. I'm, I, I don't know. It, it, it seems very negative, right. To talk about people doing a bait and switch, but it does, it does happen where providers kind of shift their gears and, and it sucks to be in that spot yeah. at the end. Yeah. So. Cause the party line of OBGYNs, like, you know, if you're in the United States and you're an OBGYN, the, you know, the ACOG, encourages VBAC. We want people to VBAC, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, we want people to VBAC. Yes. So what it often is, is that like, you're kind of getting the party line at the beginning of pregnancy because it's far off and it's like, yeah, yeah, we're, we support VBAC. Like you can do a VBAC, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then push comes to shove and you do understand that like, oh, this provider has some more new, there's some more nuance to their, Mm -hmm. their support for VBAC. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think it's, again, it is about talking to them about and asking very, sometimes, you know, you want to hear what you want to hear, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. sometimes you have to ask the hard questions and, and ask it in a non-leading way because, you know, human beings are, all of us to some degree are people pleasers, right? Like yeah. it's just like a natural human behavior mm-hmm. thing. So if you can just say like, if you can ask more detailed questions, like, hey, do you, are there any people that like, is there anything about me and what happened to me last time and my personal yeah. medical and obstetric history that makes you more nervous or reticent to recommend a, a, a VBAC? Yeah. Understanding that you, what you're getting at there is yes, you're getting at their, their, their medical assessment of, of what kind of candidate you are for a trial of labor after a C-section, uh-huh. but also you're getting an idea of what it's, what are they going to be bringing up at the end of pregnancy? Is there anything that I can address now? Yeah. Um, and really, you know, you are very much, you know, you are in a, it is okay to evaluate your provider as you move through and, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that, that you're on the same page. Yeah, for sure. I love that. I love that question. Write that down, listeners, write that down. Okay. So one of the questions is of the VBACs that you've seen, what are some of the things that stood out to you about TOLAC, about people going for a VBAC? Is there anything both good and bad, like that you're like, okay, this is like something that stood out to me in a positive way, or this is something that like I never knew about. And then I saw this and now I'm, now I'm watching for this for future births. Yeah. So I think the, the, the thing that, and I talk about my members, with my members about this all of the time. The the thing that I have found to be most important when we're we're thinking about the mode of birth is to understand that the the most important thing, right, is that regardless if you end up with a repeat C-section or you end up with a a successful uh, vaginal birth after a Mm C-section, 
what we want is somebody who had as a, you know, empowered an experience as possible. And that, you know, hopefully it was also a beautiful, empowering experience, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can have a beautiful birth experience having a C-section and you can have it having a vaginal birth. And so what I have my, my members do is I have them come up with their, their birth values. What is it, Mm -hmm. you know, and we usually stick to like three or five, like what are your birth values Yeah, and understand the, the why behind, I want a vaginal birth after C-section because what's my why. And underneath Mm -hmm. that, there's oftentimes some really good stuff. And if we can bring that to the surface, those values, I want to feel present in my birth. I want to feel that I have autonomy over my body. You know, there's these things are, Mm -hmm. you know, it's different for everybody, but these values come up and we say, what's important is, is that we talk about how you can honor those values and those deep desires, regardless Mm -hmm. of the mode of birth. So that if, so that the only, you know, if we set up, I want a vaginal birth and that is the success for me. And if I don't get that, it's, I have, I have failed every, you know, the, the birth has not, has, has failed. If you can fail right. at giving birth, right? Right. So when, yeah. so we, what we want to do is instead of making the, the we want to work towards the vaginal birth while also acknowledging like we want that, that the core, even if the vaginal birth doesn't happen, we want these on these values to be honored. Let's talk through how we can honor these values in a C-section. What mm-hmm. can we do to prepare yes. you for a C-section that is beautiful? And I will tell you, belly birth has some of the, the births that really stick out in my mind from experiences I've had with patients mm-hmm. were these, the most beautiful belly births. I mean, really beautiful experiences, Yeah, experiences that still bring tears to my eyes. And I think a lot of times we act like the only time birth can be beautiful is when it's vaginal. If it's vaginal. Yeah. It's not true. It's not true. Oh my gosh. It's the, not true. I, the birth that actually I think about the most in terms of like a beautiful birth experience was a belly birth. Yeah. And you know, that was my, that was me as a provider. That's not me as my, my yeah. personal birth experiences, but they can be really, really beautiful experiences. Yeah. Yeah. My second was, you know, it was undesired, right? Like I didn't want a second cesarean, but it was a beautiful experience and I like, I will, I will cherish it forever and it helped me grow and it helped me heal from my first one too. So, okay. I love that. So next question is about induction and VBAC. So one, at what weeks would you suggest induction with VBAC in general? And then I know um, further down in the questions, there's when would you suggest induction with VBAC with gestational diabetes? And maybe they're the same, maybe they differ. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's one of the questions. And, and one induction and VBAC is also controversial depending on the provider. So, yes. yeah. So the issue with induction with VBAC <laughs> is that, so two things are true. And this is the part that really trips people up. Mm-hmm. We, we have some data that an induction at 39 weeks with a VBAC or, you know, 39, 40 weeks with VBAC may mm-hmm. increase your chances of a vaginal delivery. We also have data that go that people who go into labor on their own yeah. have a higher chance of having a VBAC with a exactly. trial of labor. So mm-hmm. both things are true. So if we had a crystal ball, right? And we knew 
you were going to go into labor on your due date with a VBAC, we would not induce you before that because that would be best for you to go into labor on your own. However, if we had a crystal ball, we knew that you were not going to go into labor and you would need to be induced at 41 weeks and five days, we would have wished that we had induced you at 39 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So there is no right answer here. Yeah. I'm a huge uh, believer in membrane sweeps for people who really want a vaginal birth, Mm -hmm. ideally around 39 weeks. Membrane sweeps are not, they can be, (laughs) I've had many (laughs) membrane sweeps myself. They're not necessarily Mm -hmm. the most pleasant experience. (laughs) (laughs) No. And sometimes they they work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. So membrane sweeps reduce the chance that you will need a formal induction of labor. They are kind of considered a a method of induction. So we usually don't do them too early. So they reduce the chance that you'll need a formal induction of labor. On average, they're going to shorten your pregnancy by about four days. And they don't always work to put you into labor. But with a VBAC, we also want to think about how much medication we have to give you if we do need to induce you. We, Mm -hmm. We would like to reduce the amount of medication we give you. And so that may help your cervix just be a little bit more ripe and ready and primed for labor. So it Mm -hmm. may, we don't have data to support this. So that's why I'm saying it may, it may be helpful to reduce the amount of say Pitocin we need to use for your induction. Um, So that's why I really, I'm a, um, a, a big proponent of membrane sweeps in the right patient and with informed consent. Yes. Um, That is very, very critical because unfortunately that does not always happen. And that's absolutely not acceptable for someone to undergo a membrane sweep without informed consent. Right. Going over everything. Yeah. I love that. And um, yeah, like you said, like it's so hard because there's, there's no crystal ball, but yeah, you have to kind of go through and look at where you're at and what's best for you and your situation. And Another question about induction is, are there any methods you will or will not use, Um, which we do know, like through the history of cesarean, there are certain things like Cytotec and that we really don't use, but then there's random providers out there that you'll hear give Cytotec and things like that. Yeah. So when your other question about gestational diabetes when you are induced for gestational diabetes depends on how well your glucose is being controlled, if it's requiring medications. And oftentimes you, your provider is going to prioritize the, the recommendations for your gestational diabetes induction, especially if you're on insulin or if you're, say your fasting glucose is not where we want it because there's that, that, that with some types of gestational diabetes and with certain levels of control, there's that increased risk of stillbirth. That is typically where they will put the priority. So if your glucose is poorly controlled, even if it might not be the best thing for your your, uh, potential VBAC to be induced at 38 weeks, if you have poorly controlled glucose and we're looking at, you know, an increased risk of stillbirth because gestational diabetes is mostly a risk when the glucose isn't well controlled then your provider is going to say, yeah, it might not be the best thing for, for a VBAC situation, but for, for the health of the pregnancy, this is going to be our recommendation. Yeah. So that I just wanted to answer the gestational question. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay. So I'm going to, so let's go back into induction methods and what yes. you've seen. So we talked about a little bit of membrane sweeping and I am going to quickly run. My daughter is sick and screaming for me. Okay. <laughs> so keep, keep talking. I'm going to block my screen out for a quick second and I'll right. be right back. But uh, yeah, if you want to talk about induction methods and okay. what, and maybe too, what you've seen work better and maybe also where the cervix is or not. Okay. Like, does okay. that make sense? If you're not dilated at all, how can you induce and all those things? Yeah. 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 So induction is, there's a, a bit of a question mark when it comes to induction with a trial of labor after a C-section. There are, you know, medications that we most OBGYNs are not going to use. So Cytotec is one of those medications that when we're inducing labor, you know, at term, we we don't like to use it because there, there is some data that it has a higher risk of uterine rupture, which is mm -hmm. when the scar of the uterus breaks open. And that's really, we really, really want to do everything we can to avoid, to avoid that. that. That's, yeah. that's the complication that we are most, most concerned about with a, a you know, mm -hmm. with a, with a TOLAC. Some providers uh, won't do any kind of medication for uh, an induction. Mm -hmm. So they'll yeah. only do mechanical, so membrane sweeping, uh, a balloon, oh, like a Foley balloon or a Cook balloon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th they'll do rupture of membranes. But yeah. once it comes to any, any medication, they will say that'll be, that'll be a hard stop for them. Yeah. And the reason why some providers don't use Pitocin is because we, we don't have enough data to say this level of Pitocin a-okay. But once you get to this level, that's where we see the increased risk. Right. We know that using Pitocin can increase risk of rupture, but we mm -hmm. don't know where the line is. So some providers are like, okay, in that setting, with that doubt, I'm just going to say no to Pitocin altogether. Whereas mm -hmm. other providers will say, you know what, we'll use a, a lower dose protocol for mm -hmm. our, our people who are undergoing a trial of labor. And inform them, you know, like we're going to use Pitocin. It does slightly increase the risk of, of rupture, but it's not unreasonable to use Pitocin. Right. It isn't, but the person has to be informed that this may increase your risk of rupture. We're going to use a lower dose protocol to try to mitigate that risk, but we don't actually have mm -hmm. the data to say this amount is okay. This right. amount isn't okay. And so it's, um, you know, this is where it comes to different providers just land when there's nuance and when there's gray, some providers are going to land into the like, no, like no. I, I'm mm -hmm. not going to, I don't want to do anything that could increase your risk of rupture. Right. And other providers are saying like, hey, if you're aware of this risk and you're okay with it, I'm okay doing right. Pitocin. So right. it just depends. Yeah, I know. It's such a hard one um, because yeah, there are different providers, right? Like my, my, provider with my second, like I was begging for Pitocin. Like, yeah. first of all, who begs for Pitocin? <laughs> not normal. Not a yeah. lot of people, <laughs> but I was begging for it. Right. And he was like, no, 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 no. But then, you know, as a doula, I started working and I'm like, wait, there's just these, all these providers giving Pitocin, but then there's also providers that won't, or it, like you said, it's like, okay, I'll give you a fully or cook or break your water. Yeah. Or sometimes it's, I'll give you Pitocin. If we have an IUPC in, yep. we can monitor the strength, you know, but Anyway, so it's just so hard. It's, it, again, it's one of those questions where like, there's two answers, you know? Yeah, and that's the thing is, is that there are some things in medicine and some things in, in obstetrics where you will get clear answers, right? Yeah. That, 
And that's always really comforting as a patient to be like, oh, everybody kind of agrees on this. Okay, I feel comfortable. But then when you get to the situations where there's gray zone and there's nuance and you see some providers doing something this way, you know, where I Mm -hmm. trained, they gave Pitocin for for vaginal births. That was so that was my standard practice. I came in to, you know, I left residency and I joined a practice and they're like, no, we don't that we as a group do not do Pitocin for TOLAC. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, oh, okay, this is different. And yeah. so patients would ask me what, what my perspective is. And I'm like, yeah. well, my perspective is I'm used to doing this. And I think that it can be done safely, mm-hmm. but I'm part of a practice where that is, that we're is restricted. a no-go that we're, res- we're restricted. And so, you know, it's like the, the, uh, one physician could feel a certain way about what they do, mm-hmm. but then be in a setting where, you know, yes, the, the, yep. this is not how it's done, you know? And that's so, hard too, because a lot of times they would be viewed as like unsupportive, but you're like, it's actually a really, I'm supportive, but I'm restricted. And so as a patient part, like point of view, like we have to remember that sometimes it's not that the provider doesn't want to, is that they yeah. just, they can't within yeah. the practice that they're in. So so, and then, and again, that, that's where it's like, okay, well, maybe that practice isn't the right practice for you. Yes, exactly. Um, and even if you, even if you were with me and you loved right. me, you're like, I love Dr. Sterling. We get along so well, right. but her practice and, you know, some physicians, they are their own boss. Some, right. a lot of physicians are employed. And if right. you're dealing with an employed physician who has a group that says, we don't do this and right. you're an employee and not an owner of the practice, then yep. you're like, I love her but she can't offer me Pitocin. So I may have to go with someone else and maybe I don't even have the rapport that I had with that. So it's unfortunately with physicians, oftentimes like you're compromising on something. And the question is, is what are your, what do I need? What are my non-negotiables from the practice? And stay firm on those. Your non-negotiables are your non-negotiables. And, you know, be clear, like, oh, some people may, may say, you know what, I don't like that they don't offer Pitocin, but the rapport is more important to me. And mm-hmm. other people may say, you know what, I, I need to go somewhere that's willing to induce me if that's what I need with Pitocin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah with my, um, with my third, I really wanted to be back again. And I had a super supportive provider. I mean, he was top notch supportive, like known in Utah, like one of the most supportive providers. But in the end, at the end of things, I just kind of was feeling like I shouldn't be there. And I, everyone's like, why you have the most supportive provider? And I'm like, because I know he's going to be restricted. Yeah. And I don't want to have that restriction. Although there are other providers that are still going to have restrictions, but not as many. And so I changed and, you know, I, I had a VBAC after two cesareans and it was beautiful and amazing. And and maybe I would have with that provider, but I don't know, knowing yeah. that, knowing my birth story, I don't know if I would, I think I would have, he would have been cut off. He yeah. wouldn't have wanted to, but he would have been cut off. So, yeah. okay. So one of the questions was, is a C-section always safer than a vacuum or forced delivery? So if you're coming to the point and you're pushing and you're about to get this VBAC. Yeah. And you're so close, but you might need an extra little bit of assistance. Yeah. Do you feel like a cesarean is quote unquote safer or a better route than those other assisted delivery methods? Or 
I mean, like, again, this is going to be yeah. a very different, everyone oh, there's... has a different yeah. perspective and, and, um, their history of using, using these things might come into play, but well, you know, just yeah. from your stance. So you can't make a blanket statement like cesarean is always safer than a vacuum delivery or vacuum mm-hmm. is always better than a cesarean. It really is each individual situation. What I can tell you is that if the vacuum is successful, if the forceps are successful and you have a vaginal birth and, mm-hmm. you know, baby is okay and, and you're okay, then, then yeah, that was a, that was a better decision than going for a C-section, you know, um, in the second stage of labor. C-sections, mm-hmm. the second stage of labor are not risk-free. I mean, there's, you know, as we know, there's a, there's a lot of risks to that too. So yeah. um, the, the thing that we, that becomes the more unsafe situation is when you have a failed vacuum or a failed forcep, and then you go to a C-section. That's the situation we want to avoid Mm -hmm. um, because that's the highest risk situation. Failed vacuum, failed forceps, then go to C-section. If we knew that was going to happen, it would have been way better to go straight to C-section than to attempt the vacuum. Yeah. Um, but in, you know, so I think that, you know, what I would want if I was in that situation, I was, uh, you know, going through a trial of labor and uh, my provider offered me a forcep or a vacuum. I would want to know their confidence level with that. Yeah. I would not want to be the one pushing, like, can we try a vacuum? Can we try a forcep? I would want the person on the other end of that table saying, I think we've got this. I think that yeah. I think if I just put a vacuum on real quick, we're going to pop that baby out. We're going to be good. We're going to have a baby. I yeah. want that level of confidence. Yeah. I want somebody who's like, let's do this. I have no problem. I think we got it. I do yeah. not want somebody who's like, mm, I we don't, could. we could, we if could. it was me on the end of the table, somebody saying we could is like, who are you, yeah. are you feeling good about this? Like, do you, you know, yeah. there's a you sense. when you're about to do a vacuum, I don't, I've never done forceps in, on the West coast. Very few people do forceps. It's like mm-hmm. a East coast. A lot more people are still doing forceps West coast. We, we had them on labor and delivery, but not something that we did. It was a, there's some reasons for that, but, and some of it's medical legal, like just the, the, the mm-hmm. lawsuits from forceps were like departments are like, we don't do forceps anymore. Yeah. We're not doing that. So, you know, there are patients where I've been like, let's do a vacuum. I think like a, a few pulls, this, this baby's going to come out. And then there's mm-hmm. vacuums where like, I was like, listen, I could do this. There's a shot, but I didn't feel really good about it. Yeah. And in that setting, you know, and I was always super honest with patients, but if they're highly, highly motivated for that vaginal birth, they might be willing to take that risk of like, I'm thinking there's a 50, 50 shot here. Yeah. But me personally, I would want a provider to feel really good that they can, that this is uh, going to be, that it's going to work. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So another question, we're just, we're just drilling out the questions here, <laughs> um, is this person had felt during her VBAC and she did have a VBAC, but she felt like burning sensations around her her previous incision mm-hmm. and she wanted to know what that could have been could have been scar tissue could have just been that baby's passing through and stretching out that weakened uterine yeah. spot um I will admit I had that a couple times with my VBAC where I was like oh it's like 
it's like muscle. It felt like muscle. Yeah. Um, being strained, like, and that's burning. interesting. You know, that's how my first labor felt was burning. Mm-hmm. Um, in your abdominal cavity. And my yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had other patients. That's how they described contractions. It's like burning, stretching pain. Mm-hmm. So my thought is that, you know, I can't answer that question specifically, like, but what that could have, that could have had nothing to do with the fact that you have a scar. Yeah. Okay. You know, because, and that was just, that was my, my first labor experience felt like that. But then my other labor experiences, the contraction pain felt different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are people experience contraction pain differently, differently. And Mm-hmm. depending on the baby, you know, my contractions, when I had a baby who was sunny side up, when it was occiput posterior, they felt different than the contractions yep. that I had with my other <laughs> kids. So it it could have something to do with the, the scar, but also it could just have been how your just, contractions felt. Yeah. Yeah. And mine, it seemed like it was at the very end, um, right before I started pushing, like maybe baby was just descending and like, the wider part was, I don't even know. Right. And like this, I don't know the details of this followers, you know, labor she just said like that she had, it could have been scar tissue or, you know, what could have been, I, you know, I'm always, you know, it's so difficult to pinpoint what a bodily sensation, what the cause is. Cause it's right. like this, but I think that there's a lot of different possibilities <laughs> of what, totally. it be, what it could be. Some of them related to a, a scar and some of them having nothing to do nothing. with the scar. Yeah. There was another one in regards to just talking about uterine and, and VBAC. Um, she said that after her first C-section, she was told that her low, she had a lower uterine segment or the mm-hmm. lower uterine segment was thin. Thinner. Yep. Mm-hmm. So she's just saying like, could I still VBAC? Is this like a total hard? No, I absolutely shouldn't VBAC. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? It's an area of active research. Okay. okay. So um, it's an on. area of active research looking at can we on ultrasound or even, you know, uh, an MRI measure the lower uterine segment and Mm -hmm. thus determine risk of rupture and if, uh, you know, successful VBAC. And so Mm -hmm. we are really in a, it's still a question mark here if that's something that, you know, but if you do have an extremely thin lower uterine segment, Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people, sometimes we open people up after they've had a C-section and there's a window yeah, right? that's so another that's, one of the questions. They said they had a window. Yeah. I actually had a window as well. Yeah. So the so the window is it's not really like it depends. Some of the the research didn't really define like what is a uterine ru- what is a uterine rupture? Mm-hmm. Is a uterine rupture only when you get in and you open up the the belly and the the tissue is is bleeding and it's clear that it's just ruptured and this was previously tissue that was together? Or what if you open up the, the, the abdomen and you look and there's this, this separation, but it looks like it had been there for a while. Is that a uterine rupture? Is that a uterine window? So, and not all of the the research and the data has clearly said, this is what we considered a uterine rupture. This is what we considered a uterine window. So, or a dehiscence. Or dehis exactly. There's all these different terms. There's a window, dehiscence, and there's rupture. So sometimes it goes rupture. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I think that, you know, personally in this gray zone of, you know, 
where the cutoff is for how many millimeters we want to see the lower uterine segment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's hard for me to, to separate that, that from my own personal experiences, having patients have, have uterine ruptures and have them go through these long labors and then open them up and they've got a window. I think that I would lean more towards the, if my physician was telling me, Hey, you have a really thin lower uterine segment. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally would say, Oh, I would probably lean more towards a repeat C-section in that Mm -hmm. setting. Because to me, if I'm thinking about being in labor and also having the weight of like, what if my uterus ruptures? Like if that weight Mm -hmm. is too heavy, I feel like that's, that's not like that. what I want to feel when I'm like in the, yeah, the, the, that fear, constantly questioning that constantly questioning. I'm like, Oh, they said it was thin. Am I making the wrong choice? Like that to me would be very heavy. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, that isn't necessarily how another person would feel. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what I think is important to think through at, for you as an individual is, is that fact that you have been told that you have this thin lower uterine segment, is that going to be really prominent and heavy for you when you're in labor? Or are you, do you still feel light? Does your body still feel light? And, and you still feel like that's the right choice moving forward. That's the right path. Mm -hmm. And with VBAC and with my members, you know, when I take them through kind of the, um, we have our, our confident VBAC path. When I take them through that, I have them ask them, ask their body. Mm-hmm. ask your body what feel, you know, if this is, is, is this a yes and a no in your, like, you know, you have to figure yeah. out what does a yes feel like in your body? What does a no feel like in your body? Ask right. your body, what does this feel good? Or does this not feel good? And then that's part of making a confident decision about whether you go forward with a repeat C-section or trial of labor. That doesn't make the decision for you because you still get to have you still get to ask your mind and you still get to ask your emotions and you still get to have a collaborative relationship with your provider, but you need to know how your body feels about the right. decision. Yeah. You know, we talk about intuition all the time and like digging deep into like, what is that saying? What is that intuition yep. saying? And usually it's the first, a lot of times it's like, that's the first thing where it's like, I shouldn't have a, a C-section, but then it's like, oh, but I, or I, I should want a C-section. And it's like, oh, but there's this feedback thing and maybe, you know, but like our initial gut was saying, I think I should have a C-section or vice versa. I want a V-back, you know? And so, yeah, I think that is such a good, like talking to your body, asking your body. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um. Okay. I know we don't have a ton of time left over, but a few more questions we have. Would you suggest an ECV for Frank Breach wanting to VBAC or would you just say C-section or would you say maybe finding a provider if there is one in your area that could support, could support that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so and Breach um, is like a whole other podcast. Breach is a whole other thing. And yeah. it's so funny, like, you know, for me, like when people talk about breach vaginal delivery, it's like, so, you know all OBGYNs have birth trauma themselves as a second, as mm-hmm. second, we, it's called the second victim. And so we, we all carry, I don't know a single OBGYN out in the world who doesn't have I'm their sure. own, own trauma from birth. So one of my traumas is, um, is, un, is, is breach. And un, of course this is an unplanned breach, you know? So like, it's different. Mm-hmm. So like, I have to always like, kind of calm myself when breach vaginal birth is brought up because, you know, you want to talk about it in an impartial way. So 
an ECV, an external cephalic version, when we do a procedure to try to turn baby from a non-cephalic, non-head presenting position down into the head presenting position is going to increase your chances of having a vaginal birth. We know that. Um, it mm -hmm. also has some risk to it. Okay. So um, some of the, you know, the risk is that we, you know, your, your water breaks. Um, we, we cause a placental abruption. We cause the placenta to, to separate. We injure the fetus. That would be super rare, but it's always something that we caught, okay. you know, we, we uh, educate people about. I've right. never seen it, but you know, it, it could certainly happen. And one of the things is that we typically do an external cephalic version before 39 weeks because we know it's more successful. So we typically do them around 37 weeks. Yeah. And so having, you know, if we do, if your water does break at 37 weeks because you had an ECV, then we've got to, you know, do a C-section at 37 weeks. And that's a higher risk situation for your baby. We want babies to get to 39 weeks, right? If we can. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's that risk of, of an earlier delivery or emergency C-section because something happened, but it does increase your chances of a vaginal birth. So to me, it's, it's how confident is your provider that they can turn the baby? Okay. Mm -hmm. And and some, it depends, there's different characteristics of a pregnancy and of a person if they're, you know, how good of a candidate they are for ECD. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you have a provider who's like, I'm super confident. Like I, I sometimes like I'd be ultrasounding patients and I'm like, I feel like I could in the office, I'm not going to do it, but I feel like yeah. I could just push this baby down. Like there's a lot of laxity to the, the, the uterus baby mm -hmm. seems to be kind of like letting me move them. So sometimes it's like, this is very, a very clear yes. And sometimes yeah. it's a very clear no. There's like, mm -hmm. there's some, there's a, all of the, and then the, there's the, all the gray, all the, yeah. And then there's <laughs> everything in the middle. Yeah. So what do you, what risk do you feel comfortable with? You know, and if you want to be able at the end of the day to say, I did absolutely everything to get that mm -hmm. vaginal birth, then yeah, you may be, ECV may be the way to go for you, you know, yeah. and, and um, the, the risks are, are not, you know, most of the time, even if it doesn't work, everybody's fine. But there's that 1% of the time where it's like, we're running back to the OR because yeah. baby's having a heart rate deceleration and, and not recovering, not recovering. And I have certainly been in that situation more than once. So it happens. It's not common, but it's also not, I would, I it, don't classify it as It also it as doesn't rare. not happen. Yeah. 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 It's just less common. Yeah. 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 To me, rare things are things that, you know, that I, that I may never see in a, in a, a but if yeah. I, if I see it, like, you know, every year I'm, ha I'm doing it like that to me is not rare, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Someone asked if you've ever seen VBAC after multiple cesareans and, mm -hmm. you know, ACOG says like VBAC after two cesarean is reasonable for VBAC, but it really kind of falls off the ledge after that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. VBAC after three, four, you know, all the things. And we know they happen. They have, they're, they're out there, but there's very little research and so someone just said, like, what about a VBAC after three C-section? Like, what would you say, you know? And again, I think it's important to note that, like, it depends on, on every, every certain person yeah. that you're with. And it also depends on your whole history and the reasons and all of those things. But anything that you would like to bring to the table for VBAC after three plus C-section? After more than, more than two C-sections. Yeah. yeah. So I think it, what really, at the end of the day, no you have to consent to a cesarean. Yeah. You have to consent to a cesarean. A 
Cesarean cannot be performed on you without your consent, unless you are unconscious and we, you know, you're, you're brought into the ER and we need to perform a cesarean to save your life. Mm-hmm. Or you are not medically capable of making your own. Uh, Usually, then decision. they have someone else too. Sometimes, yeah. I I trained at the place where we got most of the data on VBAC because mm-hmm. I, I trained at LA County Hospital, USC, okay. and that's where um, back in the heyday of when one percent of the U.S. population was born there, it was such a busy um, maternity ward that we got the data on VBAC because we couldn't get those patients back to the OR. They mm. were giving birth in the halls. Oh, it was uh, So a lot of the VBAC yeah. data, the initial VBAC data comes from, from where I trained. And uh, where I trained, you know, we had a lot of people who would come in and give birth and not, you know, they were really um, unfortunate, very unfortunate stories and circumstances mm. um, with uh, drug abuse and um, homelessness and mental illness, and they would not know how many C-sections they had had. Mm-hmm. And they would be coming in and they would give birth. And, you know, sometimes we would, after they gave birth, we would go chart, you know, digging through the charts, looking for who this person could be. And we would found out that person had had four cesareans before, you know? Wow. So yes, I have been, I have been a part of that. I have never had a patient who had three C-sections where we did that intentionally. Mm-hmm. So I want to be upfront about that. But I think that, you know, it's all about the, you know, what ha- happened. So you had, let's say you had a, your first birth was a, a C-section for breach. Mm-hmm. And then you go on to have a, a vaginal birth. And then you mm-hmm. had another C-section for breach. And then, you know, you had another vaginal, you know, so like yeah. if you've had multiple vaginal births, right? you're then you've, had, then you've had three, you've had three C-sections. Then we're like, ah, yeah, you you are at increased risk of rupture. You've got, you have three scars on your uterus for sure, mm-hmm. but that's a very different situation than somebody who's had three C-sections a row for failure to progress. And then you're like, you've not, ne- you haven't had a vaginal birth. And are we yeah. just, we are just putting you at a lot of risk with very little prospect of, of it being successful. So I have never been in a situation where we have been somebody's had three C-sections and we've made the decision to proceed despite mm-hmm. the risks with a vaginal birth. But I have been part of deliveries where they had had multiple, multiple C-sections um, and we just, we didn't know because they were actively giving birth and we're not able to communicate how many C-sections they had to us. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing to yeah. me in my mind, because in so many ways, I wonder like, what if, like you said, like you didn't know. Yeah. But if you would have known, would care have changed? Yeah, I mean, it probably would have. I mean, we right? would have made a different recommendation, right? Because because yeah. we because what you knew. Yeah, I mean, to to us, like getting up to a two percent risk of uterine rupture, right, or higher. Who two percent? So it's a difference of perspective on ri- on percentages mm-hmm. and risk, right? As a as a physician, two percent is a lot of freaking people. Yeah, <laughs> that's two guys, out of every yeah. hundred. And when you're doing hundreds of deliveries a year, right? Those, those, that 2% with potential very dire outcomes, right. those, that 2% weighs much more heavily than somebody who's like, well, 2% is so small. There's a yeah. whole different weight to that 2%. Yeah. 
Well, when we talk about that, we talk about like, you have to decide what percentage is enough for you. Like if 2% is like fine, then go find that provider that is supportive in that. And then, because it might not be, you know, like you said, like a 2% from your standpoint is like a lot, Yeah. but then to someone else, it might not be a lot. And exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, that I, that's just so interesting. Like I wouldn't have even thought about like, you don't know the history and you have to go find who that person is. Yeah. You know, that's. Wow, that's I'm sure that was an experience. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, had, unfortunately, had that experience quite a bit with Oh my goodness. Yeah. Crazy. Um, okay, well, last question. This one is what can cause a swollen cervix? And what would you suggest, if anything, to help get that unswollen? And is there anything from an OB standpoint that you can do to help the swelling? This is something that a lot of people are like, oh well. I went in and I was like eight centimeters dilated. And then all of a sudden I was like five and, yeah. and it's not that they're necessarily literally going backwards, but swelling can happen based off of a lot of things like disruptions of checks and heads and baby's heads and you know, all these things. But um, yeah. yeah. Anything that you would like to speak to about swollen cervix? Yeah. So we, um, so we don't necessarily know why sometimes the cervix swells. Mm-hmm. It's a really unfortunate si- situation. What I have seen anecdotally in my experience is that oftentimes when a cervix swells and then I have ended up doing a C-section because, you know, not just for cervical swelling, because that's not an indication for a C-section, but right. you know, that if that person, you know, did not progress after that is oftentimes we have found baby is, you know, not really in the optimal position to right. move down the birth canal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, um, something I have experienced personally. And it's very frustrating because you feel like as a, as a person who's when you're in labor and when you're giving birth, you feel like it's, it's all you and your body. And, you know, yes. it's, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. So I want to remind people that you are only half of the equation in birth and yes. uh, babies can be cooperative and they can be very uncooperative. I have had an uncooperative baby and it was really, really hard. Um, so we can try things like, uh, like Benadryl. We can try sometimes, you know, it's like, okay, let's, let's, you know, if everything's safe, maybe we, you're on, if you're on Pitocin, maybe we turn it down. We just give a little break. We can try some Benadryl. We can, uh, try some Tylenol. Like these are things Mm -hmm. that are aimed at anti-inflammatory. Yeah. And so do you um, take that orally, I assume? You can, or you can give it um, intravenous if, you know, if okay. somebody's not to- tolerating oral, but, uh, and there's some kind of, you know, there's some mixed data out there about, um, about Tylenol and about Benadryl and it's, and it's use in, in labor. So there's, but there's not, you know, fixing the swelling once it's occurred doesn't mm-hmm. always happen. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So sometimes yeah. you just, you can dilate past it. You certainly can dilate past it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have seen that that many times, but yeah. I think the important thing to keep in mind is it's it's not something that y- you have done wrong, or if you did things, you know, it's mm-hmm. we don't necessarily know why sometimes that happens. Right. Um, it may be that you know, baby's just not in the ideal position because really, baby is dilating your cervix. It's right. a there's this like nice feedback loop where as baby descends into the birth canal, it sends signals to your brain 
to release right. oxytocin. And so it's a, it's a collaborative process between you and baby. And, you know, I had a, I have, I had a, um, I've had three births and my first birth, you know, I pushed four contractions and baby was out phenomenal. Then all of a sudden my fourth, my, my third birth, I was pushing for an hour and nothing, not a budge, not a budge. And we thought maybe he was sunny side up, but we also knew he was big and he was essentially 11 pounds when he was born. So he was big. And I was so down on myself. I was like, I shouldn't have pushed the epidural button that last time. Uh-huh. How did I forget how to push? You blamed yourself. Oh my gosh. And I know better, but I did. Yeah. Blaming myself. I was like, why can't I do this? How did I forget to push? OB comes in and she's like, yeah, I think I agree with you. I think he's OP. I can try a manual rotation. And I looked at her and I was like, girl, just do it. That's she another goes, one of the questions, by the way. Yeah. So she goes in, she does. And listen, she was better at manual rotation than I am. Like I, uh, I have not had as much success. Like the fact that this manual rotation worked was yeah. a little bit of a surprise to me because in my experience, it's always been really hard to do. Mm-hmm. She went in, she pushed him up. She turned his, him down and he came out. Um, I, didn't, I didn't even have to push. So the whole time I'm thinking I'm not pushing correctly. How did I forget how to push? Putting all of the pressure on myself. Yeah. There we go. It wasn't me. It wasn't yes. me. I didn't I actually that. even have the to chills. push. I didn't even have to push. I mean, I had to push past my perineum, but he came all the way yeah. to crowning once he was in the proper position. And that was a yeah. huge eye-opening uh, moment for me. I instantly felt bad for all of the patients who I had coached and tried to get them to push correctly. And I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Such a, I love that. Like we really do as a society, we need to stop. I mean, not even just in birth, just in all things like motherhood. I mean, you know, like so many things like, Oh, I'm a bad mom because I did yep. this or all oh, this happened. You know, like it's just, we put so much pressure and it, I mean, going right back to the very beginning of this whole conversation as being an advocate, saying that we have to advocate for ourselves. It puts, all this extra pressure because not only are you saying, okay, well, so you have to go into labor. You have to dilate. You have to face, you have to bring a baby down in the right position. Then you have to push a baby out. Then you have to nurse a baby. Then you have to deliver, you know, all these things, right? So it's like, why are we adding all this extra pressure onto ourselves? When you, like you said, it's like, you were doing all the right things. You were doing everything, but there was just this little factor that needed to change. And it was out of your control. You were trying to do everything you possibly could. Exactly. So uh, I love it. And going back, that was what I said last question, but that was one of the questions is, you know, can you as an OB help if I have a posterior baby? And I've seen it as a doula. I've seen same thing. This provider who um, I think is amazing kind of goes in, he did the same thing, goes up, wrote I mean, I could just see him like, he closes his eyes and he's like yep. doing this whole thing with his head. And he's like, okay, all right, we're good. And it's just yep. like, okay. So yeah. that is the thing. So the very, very, very last question is how's a patient, if you're like, okay, I think my baby's OP or maybe your doula or your nurse or your doctor saying, oh, I think this baby's OP. How can you as a patient ask, can you yeah. just simply say, can you help me rotate this baby? I I'm having a hard time doing it with pushing. Yeah. So yeah, you do have to be completely dilated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you have to be completely dilated. And 
you know, there, there are some, I find that it's, you know, <laughs> it can be really difficult to perform, but in the right patient, um, mm-hmm. it is a wonderful tool to have in your, your toolkit, but there is, there's some providers who are so good at it. And there's some providers who just aren't, you know, it's, they haven't done it as much. Yeah. And yeah, I was yeah. really impressed by this. This OB was a, a newer graduate. Like she had just graduated mm. that, that year from residency. And I actually, um, we had, um, some friends in common, like she had trained where I had friends do their fellowship. And so I texted mm. them after, and I was like, she was so good at that manual rotation. Like, yeah. and they were like, yeah, th- at that program, they really push manual rotation. They do a ton of it. So they come out really well trained in that. Yeah. And I was like, that's so awesome. Cause I feel like in our training, like that wasn't something that we, we did a ton of. Focus so on. I always was like, yeah, I can do it. And I would try. And once mm-hmm. in a while I'd have a success, but it wasn't like, I didn't feel super confident in that skill. Right. Yeah. But you, you know, that's the thing is that where you, where you train really depends on like the skills that you pick up. Yeah. But anyway, um, so yeah, I think that if you're, if you think your baby's OP and you're, your um, provider, you know, your provider really does have to feel like they're OP because they don't want to yeah. turn a baby the opposite no. way. <laughs> no. You don't want to do, you know, you don't want to turn them the opposite way, but you can say like, hey, if we think this baby is an OP, can, can, can we do a manual rotation and try to get them head down? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's important to ask what the risks are and mm-hmm. uh, communicate to your provider. Like if that's something you want, you have to say like, yeah, I'm okay with those risks. And then you put your provider at a place of comfort. We get uncomfortable when patients, like for me, when a patient uh, is signaling to me that they understand the risk or they don't believe the risk is possible, that's when you put your provider into like a nervous uh, situation. Right. Yes. I love that when you're like, when your patient is confident, like it helps you. Like, yeah, that makes sense. When they're saying, well, I don't think that will happen. Then you're yeah. like, oh God, I need to, I need you to understand that this very much could happen. Yes, but it could happen. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And this, this one provider that was talking to you about, like, um, there was one time where he was going the, the way that you would normally go. And he was like, nope, this baby has to go the other way. And I was like, what? And seriously, just rotated the other way. And he's like, all right, now it's good. And so sometimes too, it's like, talk to your provider and say, like, can we try one more time? Yeah. Or I understand it's not working. Can we take a little break and then try again? Yeah. Or try yeah. the other direction or whatever, right? Assess things. Yeah. And asking questions. Like, I think it's really good to just ask questions. Like if somebody's saying no, and it's okay to say, can you walk me through the, your reasoning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's I love totally that. okay. It's you totally okay why. to ask that. And sometimes when, you, when they walk you through your reasoning, you, you may say, you know what? I'm actually okay with that risk. Or when they walk you through their reasoning, you might be like, yeah, I feel you there. I feel much more confident with this decision. It's not the outcome that I wanted, but right. I, I'm resonating with your thought process. And thus I feel more comfortable in this decision so that mm-hmm. a month later after this birth, I'm not thinking back on that situation yes. and wondering, should I push just a little bit harder? Yeah. So it's, you know, even if you're not getting the the birth outcome that you had kind of envisioned, it's important for you to understand the why. Mm-hmm. Uh, for many people, I should say, it's important to understand yeah. the why, so that you know your birth, your birth story becomes part of your story, mm-hmm. and 
you know, if they're, you don't want to be, I don't want people to always be questioning, should I have done this? Should I have done that? And I think a lot of the times, because we feel uncomfortable asking for more explanation and we're not necessarily always given the explanation that then we have all these questions that we carry with us for literally years. I mean, women who gave birth 20 years ago will come in my DMs and be asking questions about that. And it breaks my heart that they've been carrying that, that weight for so many years. Yeah. I think that is such a great spot to end on is ask questions. It's okay. It's okay to ask those questions and it's okay to, to have that doubt too. It's okay to have that doubt and have that question Sometimes it's like, oh, well, it's a stupid question. Well, but it's not a stupid question because no. it's a question that you it's a question you have. And it's a question yeah. that you, there really is no such thing as stupid questions. Yeah. There really yep. is no such thing. Yeah. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know that so many people are going to be just waiting so patiently for this <laughs> episode to air because I mean, we really had so many questions. We had so many questions we didn't get to. Yeah. Um, so again, thank you so much. And oh, you're welcome. It was an honor. Yes. Can you tell everyone where to find you on social media and maybe talk a little bit more about um, your program? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm Dr. Sterling OBGYN. That's Dr. Sterling OBGYN on TikTok and on Instagram. And then I have a membership where I support people through trying to conceive pregnancy, postpartum, the whole journey. Um, and that's sterlingparents.com. And we have a beautiful curriculum that we put the people through to help support them through the physical and emotional challenges um, mm-hmm. uh, of the of the whole journey. And then we have a really lovely database that I'm very proud of that really can replace all of the internet searches and Google. And that database is all, it all has three e-verification. So all of our information is evidence-based, awesome. expert-based and experience-based. So we like to, you know, we like to talk about things and with people who have had that experience themselves. And um, yeah. I love it. Awesome. And we'll make sure to drop all those links in the show notes. So listeners, check out the show notes. And then we'll also have you on our um, social media today and we'll have everything tagged as well. So if it's, if you're not knowing how to do it in the show notes, go check out our (laughs) Instagram. So thank you again so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Tell us about your experience at thevbacklink.com slash share. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julian Megan's bios, head over to thevbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.